in the Bible, there's a story of a man named Paul. Paul was a self-declared enemy of the church in opposition to Jesus and his followers. That all changed in an instant when one day, on his way to Damascus in Syria, Paul encountered Jesus. This was the same Jesus that Paul knew to have died on a cross just a short while ago, but was now resurrected to life everlasting. As you can imagine, Paul's life changed dramatically that day. In fact, Paul would go on to become an apostle of Jesus, devoting the rest of his life to spreading this gospel message of hope. A number of years after this event, Paul made his way to Athens, Greece. As was his custom, he first visited and taught in the local synagogue. After that, he would engage with the non-Jewish or Gentile population in the marketplace. While sharing the message of Jesus with some Athenian philosophers, Paul was taken to the Areopagus. This was an outcropping of stone northwest of Athens, where rulers, politicians, intellects would gather and discuss matters of great importance and concern. Paul was placed in the midst of the Areopagus and was told to explain this new teaching. Paul then began his defense by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I walked along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul continued saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life, breath, and everything else. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The fact that the Athenians had an altar to the unknown God suggests that there was enough evidence through the natural created order, through the testimony of human history, and through mankind's moral conscience to convince them that there is in fact a God out there that should be worshipped. In theology, this is called general revelation. It's the idea that enough evidence exists outside of the Bible to support the existence of God. This evidence is typically broken into three categories. The first is nature, or creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. In Romans chapter 1, Paul himself writes that what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The second category of general revelation is human history. Daniel 4 says, God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Elsewhere, in Daniel chapter 2, we read that God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he establishes them. We also see the historical evidence of God's existence through the survival and persistence of the Jewish people. From the time Abraham was called, through the events of the Exodus, to their exile and return from exile, all the way up to modern day. The final category of general revelation is mankind's moral conscience. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that when Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who do not have the law, 
do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So now we know that general revelation provides enough evidence to support the existence of God, but it doesn't necessarily inform us of the nature and essence of God. For that, we must turn our attention to direct revelation. In theology, this is called special revelation. It's the idea that God wanted to communicate directly with his creation. We see the first evidence of this near the end of the creation story, when God, the creator, spoke directly with Adam and Eve, the creation. This interaction tells us three things. God wanted to be known. God wanted relationship with mankind. And God expected obedience. So how does God reveal himself to us? Because it's fairly obvious that God doesn't commonly use the audible voice to communicate with us, though he can and has. Hebrews chapter 1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. We also know from Paul in Ephesians 3 that God spoke to us through his holy apostles. All of this special revelation from God, from the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus of the Gospels and beyond, and the apostles in the New Testament, was cemented by the written word we know today as the Bible. Unlike oral tradition that relies on the accuracy, integrity, and honesty of both the orator and the listener, the written word preserves the message of the writer, especially considering the strict transcription practices used by groups like the Masoretes. For example, the Masoretic transcriptionists from as early as the 7th century referenced every letter before it was copied. Then, for quality control, they would count every paragraph, every sentence, every word, every letter to ensure the accuracy of the transcription. And if the transcription was deemed to be inaccurate at any point, it was condemned, thrown out, and they started again. So God used the written word to reveal himself to his creation. That written word culminated in the final product of the Bible. This leads us naturally into the next logical question of how was the Bible written? The Masoretes and other groups took great care copying the biblical manuscripts. But how was it originally written? How was the mind of God captured on the page? In 2 Peter, we read that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we break this verse down, we first see the phrase, no prophecy of Scripture. Reflexively, we assume that prophecy means foretelling of the future, but that is only partially true. Prophecy also involves forthtelling, which is to say, asserting the mind of God. In fact, Forthtelling makes up the overwhelming majority of prophecy in the Bible. So, no prophecy of Scripture means that no foretelling of future events or forthtelling knowledge of God was ever produced by the will of man, meaning the content of the Bible did not originate from the machinations or imaginations of men, but men spoke from God, making God the origin of the message as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried here means the Holy Spirit moved men inwardly. 
prompting them to produce a particular portion of Scripture, which collectively became the unified revelation from God that we know as the Bible. Overall, the Holy Spirit used around 40 men to write the Bible over a period of about 1,500 years, stretching as far back as the 15th century B.C. to near the end of the 1st century A.D. So now we know that Scripture was written by men, not of their own volition, but by the inspiration of God, which is further supported by what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Knowing that the Bible was written by men and inspired by God answers the question of where did the Bible come from, but that still doesn't answer the complete picture of what the Bible is. For that, we need to examine the purpose of the Bible. As we just learned, one of the primary purposes of the Bible is to know God, who He is, and what He expects of us. In addition to learning about God, we can also learn about ourselves. As one 20th century pastor puts it, the Bible tells us what we could never learn in any other way. It tells us what we are, who we are, how we got here, why we are here, and what we are required to do while we remain here. Regarding that last part, 2 Timothy chapter 3, after stating that all Scripture is God-breathed, goes on to say that it is useful for instruction, conviction, correction, and training in righteousness. Beyond knowing about God and learning about ourselves and righteous living, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, as it's called in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Word in these verses is Jesus. John goes on to write that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is called the Incarnation, God putting on flesh. The Incarnation of Jesus is the nexus of special revelation. The Word became flesh is the proclamation of the ultimate theme of God's revelation. And that is, God desires to have relationship with us, and that is made possible through Jesus. So how exactly can we enter into relationship with God? John chapter 1 goes on to say that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, yet his own people did not receive him. But John didn't stop there. He went on to share the good news, the gospel, as it's called. He writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And he has a remarkable plan for your life.